Hi, my name's Mark Kelly and I'm part of the leadership at City Church Leeds and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast. You join us as we're journeying through the Gospel of Matthew and trying to understand what it really means to live in the Kingdom of God. For more information, other resources and media, please visit our website, citychurchleads.net. Search for us on Facebook or catch us on Twitter at cc underscore leads. We look forward to connecting with you. So right now, can we please put, a, put our hands together and just really appreciate and honour Ian Russell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here in Leeds. Love Leeds, love Leeds, love what God is doing and uh, love his plans for this incredible place. Um, the Apostle Paul says there's three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of them, of course, is love. And that's why Marge and I love to speak about love. That's why we love to explore the love of the Father and what his love does in our hearts and lives. Thank you. But all three are important. And today, um, the focus is going to be much more into hope. Hope is a confident expectation of good. So that when we look at the future, instead of being filled with despair or foreboding or a sense of impending doom, there is an expectation of that which is good breaking in. And uh, I do believe it's part of my life's mission to embrace all three and to express all three things, faith, hope, and love. And uh, why I'm so passionate in terms of hope is that when I grew up in the my background is the Pentecostal church. When I grew up in the Pentecostal church, the prospect of the future was filled with doom and gloom. And um, I don't want anybody to live in that perspective because it's debilitating. Because what we believe about the future shapes our present. And we will never break into, in the present, the fullness of God if we believe the future is going to be filled with disaster. And uh, thank God, the future is all about the fullness of Christ and the fullness of his kingdom. It's not about antichrist, tribulation, or any such nonsense. It's about the fullness of Christ and the fullness of his kingdom. It's not that Antichrist isn't in there. It's not that tribulation isn't in there. But I want to give you a perspective that perhaps you might not have seen. And uh, I'd like us to open it up from Matthew. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. Uh, I'm reading from the New International Version simply because that is probably the most common translation that people have these days. And uh, like it says on the screen here, there's this focus that you're in right now on Matthew's gospel, which you're tracking through. And I understand I'm coming in in part seven. And uh, so I will just pick it up in Matthew 23. Let me say a couple of things just as a backdrop to Matthew that's so important. First of all, I think it's vitally important to understand that Matthew is absolutely immersed in Old Testament understanding. And that in order to understand Matthew, you've got to go back into the Old Testament to see what he says, because if we just interpret it according to our understanding of contemporary events without the paradigm that the Old Testament gives, we will inevitably misinterpret what Matthew is saying. Matthew is immersed in an Old Testament paradigm, and he's filled with Old Testament prophetic promises, which he then begins to unfold in the gospel of his writings. 
A key word for Matthew's gospel, the key word is fulfilled. And so, in the first two chapters, the word fulfilled is used five times. Because Matthew is so intentional about saying, what was prophesied is now fulfilled. And even in the first two chapters, he is leaving people without any question at all that this Jesus is the Messiah and connects it back into the prophets, connects it back into Isaiah, into Jeremiah, into Hosea, into Micah. That's only in the first two chapters. He's so thoroughly immersed in the Old Testament that he can pick out whatever prophet he wants in order to substantiate that this Jesus is the Messiah. And throughout the book of Matthew, 15 times he uses the direct quote of, this is to fulfill what was spoken. Whether it's by Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Daniel, whoever. And so he is an incredibly literate man in the Old Testament writings. Second thing I'd like to say about Matthew is that his gospel is stylized where the into two parts. The first part focuses on his Galilean ministry, which is up north. Or as you say around here, up north. And chapter 19 becomes a watershed of Jesus relocating from Galilee down south to Judea. In Galilee, Galilee was the northern province that was away from the place of political and religious power, which was in the south in Jerusalem. In the north, he was amongst people that he grew up with. He himself, I want to encourage you, he himself had a northern accent. He was a Galilean. And so he was amongst people that he was on the same wavelength with. As you well know, he was actually born down south. He was born in Bethlehem, but grew up in the northern province of Galilee. So in Galilee, multitudes followed him. He was readily accepted. Chapter 19, he moves down south to Judea. And he then begins to hit the resistance of the religious and political powers of the time. On the one hand, the religious power of the Herodians, and on the other hand, uh, the, the political power of the Herodians, and on the other hand, the religious power of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he is contended with. And they seek to test him, and they seek to trip him up, and they seek to kill him because of what he's carrying. And so what we're about to read in Matthew 23 is in this context of his incursion into the southern part, into Judea, and the resistance that he faces as opposed to the general acceptance that he received when his ministry was in the north. So I'm painting big brush strokes for you just to get the context of what this is about, okay? So we're in the context of the second part of the book into the Judean ministry. It's a, it's a time of resistance to Jesus, generally. Chapter 23, then, is where he denounces the Pharisees and the scribes and give seven wars. And uh, it's absolutely shocking because people thought that the scribes and the Pharisees were the standard. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom. They're going, wow, you've got to have a high standard of righteousness then if you've got to be above the Pharisees. But then what Jesus does is in Matthew 23 is expose the heart of the Pharisees calls them whitewashed sepulchres. 
on the outside looking so impressive, but on the inside, in the heart, where it really matters, there was issues of the heart that he says, you're full of dead men's bones. This is ultimate uncleanness. So let's pick it up, and we're going to read from Matthew 23 into Matthew 24, some little ways into Matthew 24, just to get context. Okay, verse 29 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding, in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was walking away. When his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings, do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then... You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your, your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, an equal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. That time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. 
immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations on the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This passage in Matthew 24 is the result of a question. Jesus has pronounced war on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the context of standing in the temple. He's leaving the temple after saying to them, your house is left to you desolate. Such a contrast to a few chapters earlier when he talked about my house will be a house of prayer. He's now saying your house. It's left you desolate. And as he's walking away, the disciples draw his attention to the beautiful buildings which were still being constructed at that time. And he makes the astounding statement, not one stone will be upon another. Disciples are shocked by his statement. And probably they were thinking it hard as they dropped down into the Kidron Valley and walked up the other side of the Mount of Olives. And as they sat on the Mount of Olives with the temple in full view opposite them, Jesus' words of not one stone will be left upon another are probably still ringing in their ears. And they turn to him and they ask him, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Their assumption is, if the temple is destroyed, it's got to be the end of the age. This whole discourse is framed by a really two important statements that are the same statement. In chapter 23 and verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. The judgment that is due to previous generations because of refusing the prophetic word that started with Abel, went right through to Zechariah. It's an A to Z of the prophetic that was given to the nation of Israel. The judgment on previous generations is coming down to this generation, the contemporaneous people that lived at the time of Jesus, why is it coming to this generation? Because Jesus told them the parable about the vineyard owner that sent his servants and they killed his servants and then he sent his son. And what they did was the heinous crime is they killed his son. And now the son is coming, the ultimate prophet, and they're going to kill him. So on this generation, this contemporaneous people that lived at the same time as Jesus, on that generation is going to come all the judgment that has been stacking up in every previous generation on this generation. And as part of that judgment, your house is left to you 
desolate. Jesus describes the answer to the question of when will this be? In chapter 24, verse 34, he makes exactly the same statement. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So all that we've read in chapter 24 up until this point, it's all to do with the judgment on that generation. Any attempt to apply it to a future generation is utterly illegitimate according to the prophetic timescale of Jesus. Just to say, this phrase, this generation, is used four times in Matthew. Every time it's applied to that contemporaneous community that lived at the same time as Jesus. There's a book here <laughs> that was previously written. And in there, I explain where those scriptures are. I don't want to go into the details of it today because it's already there, but I want to paint the broad brushstroke so that you get the overview and the context of what is being said, okay? So forgive me if I don't give you all the dottings of the I's and the crossing of the T's and quoting every scripture because we'd be here till tomorrow morning if I did that. I just want to do the broad brushstroke. So my point is, what he's saying is applying to that generation back there. And everything that I have written, uh, that I've read of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, I can confidently say that Jesus was right. It happened in that generation. Biblically, a generation is 40 years. The psalmist talks about the 40 years through the wilderness, and he says, the Lord is saying, that generation, those 40 years, they didn't hear me. Jesus is speaking these words on the Mount of Olives round about A.D. 30. When he says, this generation, he's talking within 40 years. These things will come about. Now, what I didn't realize when I was growing up, which I now realize... And I didn't realize it because it's not mentioned in the scriptures, but it's a major event in terms of the history of Israel. Is that around AD 66, because of the incredible resistance to Roman rule that was in the land of Israel, the Roman army began to lay siege to Jerusalem. They began to quell the riotous attitude that was in that land. And it wasn't a three and a half year siege that was without interruption because there was so much going on in the Roman world at that time that the siege loosened its grip because of some wars in other parts of the empire. But then the iron grip of the siege became reestablished in AD 69. And the gentleman Titus that was involved 
in the siege. His father, Vespasian, became the emperor, so he had to back off to become emperor in Rome. But Titus himself, Vespasian's son, finished off the siege of Jerusalem and destroyed the city. One million Jews got killed. One million Jews got carted off into exile around the Roman Empire. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. And the nation of Israel failed to exist in the same way. And Jesus' words, your house is left to you desolate, not one stone will be left upon another, came about in that generation. And so my absolute conviction is that what we've read this morning was all accomplished by AD 70 in that generation. So what I'd like to do now is just for a short time visit some of the phrases in Matthew 24 because in a 21st century Western mindset, we read it and we think, how in the world can those things be fulfilled back then? Surely they refer to the end of the world. And it's because we don't have a biblical mindset. We don't have a mind like Matthew that's immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. And because we think with a Western mind instead of an Eastern mind, the symbolism and the imagery that is in the Old Covenant, which is Eastern in terms of its mentality, it's a foreign thing to us. Because instead of having an Eastern mindset, our mindset is derived from the Greeks. Our educational system is derived from the Greeks, which is logical and linear and not dramatic and pictorial like the Eastern mindset is. And so we read it and we think this has got to be the end of civilization stuff as we know it. Well, it was the end of civilization, but it was that civilization back then, not the end of the world. Okay. So let's just dive into verse 15. Just prior to verse 15, Jesus says, these are going to be signs that are going to accompany the build-up to one stone not being placed upon another. All of those signs are simply the birth pangs. You know what it's like, ladies, when you're in birth pangs? It's the beginning. Sometimes they're false birth pangs. They stop and start up a few days later. Birth pangs does not mean to say that the baby is about to come. Jesus is saying these are just birth pangs. It's not yet. And then he comes down to verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel... Let the reader understand. And for most of my life, I read this and thought, the reader doesn't understand. <laughs> what does that mean? When you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Matthew understood what that meant. He was immersed in the Old Testament. I hadn't got a clue. Now, thank God there's more than one gospel. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you've got four different perspectives on the same events. Matthew is a Jew, immersed in Old Testament. He speaks into a Jewish context. Luke is a Greek. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus in terms of the, one of the apostles. He was a Greek, and he spoke from a Greek mindset. He's also a doctor, a physician, and therefore he's very logical and he's more on our wavelength as Westerners. So let's turn to Luke chapter 21 and see what Luke says because that will help us 
to explain what in the world does the abomination of, that causes desolation mean? Luke 21, verse 20. This is the parallel scripture in Luke. Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that is written. So here's Luke giving explanation to our these dumb Gentiles, myself included, what does the abomination that causes desolation mean? Daniel wrote about it, but Luke says, it's when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And the Roman army gave worship to its emperor. The sign of the emperor was the imperial eagle. And the imperial eagle was held aloft on poles as an image to be revered in worship of the emperor. So Jerusalem gets surrounded by the Roman army in AD 66, where there are these imperial eagles on poles that are given veneration by the Roman soldiers. To the Jews, veneration of anything other than the one true God is an abomination that causes desolation. This is what happened a hundred or so years previously when the abomination of desolation was destroyed under Judas Maccabeus because the Hellenistic authorities had decided to put a pig on a pole in the temple. Now you know to a Jew, a pig is an unclean animal. And again, Judas Maccabeus in AD 165 led a Judean revolt against this abomination. And what Daniel prophesied was partially fulfilled through Judas Maccabeus. The temple was cleansed and proper worship was established. But Jesus is saying that the prophet Daniel prophesied about Judas Maccabeus, but it wasn't just about that. It was about what was about to come upon this generation. The abomination that causes desolation, Luke says, is when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies and worship is offered to something other than the one true God. Verse 17 of Matthew 24, let no one on the roof of the house, or verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Clearly, this is local to Jerusalem. It's local to Judea. This is about what goes on in that particular geographical locality. Eusebius, a historian who wrote in the fourth century, documents the fact that when the siege started, it wasn't only Jews that were on the inside of Jerusalem, but Christians were there too. And the Christians who knew their scriptures and heard what Jesus had said took note, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. And when there was a lull in the siege because the Roman army got 
taken off to another place to quell some more rioting. That was the opportunity that the Christians took to escape Jerusalem, and they, fl they fled across the Jordan River to Pella, which is currently in Jordan, the country of Jordan, across the River Jordan. And so the Christians escaped the siege and the horrific consequences of the siege of AD 70. They actually fled. Verse 20, pray that your flight may not take place in winter on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress. The King James Version says great tribulation. I want you to know without any question that the great tribulation is something that's historical and past. The great tribulation is not something that's future. Jesus said that there would be great tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Do you see that if the great tribulation were future and the end of the world, how could it be never to be equaled again if it were at the end? The great tribulation has already passed. It is the siege of Jerusalem. As Luke says, it's the days of vengeance or the days of distress. We don't have to anticipate a great tribulation. Now, I'm not suggesting that we won't experience tribulation. All I'm saying is we don't have to experience a great tribulation. It's already passed. That in itself was a major shift for me when I saw that. Because I'd grown up to believe that the Great Tribulation was something that was coming. Antichrist would emerge. The beast would emerge. The false prophet would emerge. And our lives would be hell on earth. And unless Jesus came to rescue us out of the mess, then nobody would survive which led me to believe as a teenager, why would I want to bring children into a world that was going to be so horrific? Which led me, because I'm a thinker, which led me as I processed this thought as a teenager to bring children into the world would be tantamount to irresponsibility. which is exactly what the enemy wants us to, is to get into a posture of fear about the future that instead of producing godly offspring that's going to help fill the earth with glory, we pull back from our calling of God. And instead of producing godly offspring, we make vows of, I shouldn't bring any offspring into the world because the future is going to be so awful for them. And I had to repent of even thinking that way, which is what I did as a teenager. So I want you to know, if you think that the tribulation, the great tribulation is future, repent. Line up with what Jesus said. Those times were unequaled back then. They're never going to be repeated. Most people track with me fine through these passages until you get down to verse 29. And this is where we require Old Testament understanding in order to see what's gone on here. So, verse 29 through to verse 31, for most people, sounds like the second coming. Actually, the second coming isn't even mentioned in this passage except once by Jesus. In verse 27, when he says, As lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming, or the Greek word is parousia, the parousia of the Son of Man. The rumor will be that he's going to come back 
during the siege, and he's going to come back secretly. He's out in the country, or he's in the inner room. And Jesus is saying, don't believe it. Because when I do come, I'm not coming back during the siege. But when I do come, it's going to be like lightning that's going to flash from the east and go to the west, and everybody's going to know about it. And I'm not coming back during the siege. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Let me just say about this carcass. What is a carcass? It is a structure that has no life. What is the carcass that he's referring to? The carcass of the temple. Because he's saying, your house is left to you desolate. The life giver is walking out of the temple and he's saying, your house is left to you desolate. It's become a carcass. It's supposed to be the dwelling place of God. God says, I'm out of here. And where the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. The same word in Greek for vulture is exactly the same word as eagle. It's up to you how you translate it. So around the carcass of the desolate temple gathers the eagles, the Roman insignias, surrounding the city. And of course, they destroy it. Verse 29 then. Immediately after the distress of those days, immediately is not 2,000 years later. Immediate is immediate. So right after the distress, that word there is exactly the same as what we've said before, tribulation, thlipsis in the Greek. Immediately after the distress, the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. As Westerners, we read this and we go, this is the end of the world. And I'm saying, it is the end of a world, but it's not the end of the world. Because we've got to see what the imagery means. Let me just get my notes here to get the right part. There's many references to sun, moon, and stars in Scripture. Sun, moon, and stars being darkened refers to nations and political powers, their lights going out. Um, let's look quickly back to Isaiah 13, just as an example. There's many examples in the scriptures, but we haven't got time to explore them all. Isaiah 13, verse 1, an oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. So this is an oracle against Babylon, and it's a prophecy against Babylon for what is about to happen. Let's go down to verse 9 of Isaiah 13. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. Here's a prophecy against Babylon. And Isaiah expresses it in terms of Sun, moon, and stars extinguished. Did the sun, moon, and stars get darkened physically, literally at that time? No. But again, the Eastern mindset is 
the lights went out on Babylon. What Babylon was as a power, as a significant influence, is no longer shining. And this sun, moon, and stars motif is applied when God brings judgment and destruction on nations. So when we read in Matthew 24 about sun, moon, and stars becoming extinguished, what this is is prophetic imagery to say Israel and Judah are no more. The lights have gone out on the nation of Israel. They are no longer the power that they once were. Judgment has come because they refused the one who was the life source, the Messiah. And he says, not one stone of you will remain upon another. And that's exactly what happened. The whole thing was torn down. And even what we see of the Wailing Wall today is nothing to do with the temple. It's to do with the basement structure and that which is underground. It's nothing to do with the superstructure which has completely been demolished. Jesus' words have come into reality. Okay. Back into Matthew 24. Verse 29 then is not about the end of the age. It's about the end of that age. All right. Verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky... All the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Ian, how can you say that happened back then in AD 70? This sounds like the end of the world. And I, my answer to you is it sounds like you to the end of the world, but it didn't sound like Matthew as the end of the world, but it did sound like the end of that world. So let's unwrap this, okay? First, there's three things here in verse 30. This is what the literal Greek says. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then will appear the sign. The sign is not the same as the substance. Then will appear the sign. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I was watching the um, anniversary of the celebration of the Normandy landings. And it took place in June in, in Normandy in France, and all the the, the, the nations, the leaders of the nations, of the Western nations were there. And the queen arrives. And the commentator said this. The sign of the sovereign is on the bonnet of the car. It did not mean that the queen was sat on the bonnet. What's the sign of the sovereign? It's the royal ensign. The sign was on the front of the Rolls Royce, flapping away in the wind, which indicated that the queen was in the car. What is the evidence that the queen is in Buckingham Palace? It's when the royal ensign flies from the pole, the flagpole on the roof of Buckingham Palace. When I say the sign of the Queen is on the roof of Buckingham Palace, it does not mean that Her Majesty herself has gone walkabout on the parapets. The scripture says the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The sign that the Son of Man is in heaven is the pile of rubble on the earth. It's the fact that what he said 
has happened, not one stone will be left upon another. When you see a pile of rubble on the earth, that's the sign that he's now in heaven. After the distress of those days, then will appear the sign. What's the sign? The pile of rubble. Your house is left to you desolate. Not one stone will be upon another. So the rebellious house has been condemned. It's now a pile of rubble. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Here's the second thing. And all, this is the NIV, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. Can I say flat out, that's a terrible translation. What is a far better translation is, the tribes of the land will mourn. That's what it literally says. Now, doesn't that make sense? There's a pile of rubble in Jerusalem, and the tribes of the land are in mourning. It's nothing to do with the nations of the world. It's the tribes of the land. And again, we can explore that some more. I'm happy to talk Greek with you. Here's the third aspect in verse 13. And they will see, 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That must certainly mean the second coming. My answer is no, it doesn't. Because we don't read it according to the Old Testament. Daniel 7 is the key verse that describes this. Daniel 7 describes the Son of Man coming with clouds to the Ancient of Days. The coming isn't to earth. The coming is to heaven and to God. Our perspective has been earthbound. Our perspective has been, oh, he must be coming back to earth. But what the Old Testament prophets describe which Jesus takes up from the prophet Daniel, is this is a coming from earth to heaven. Then they will see the Son of Man. See, by the way, doesn't have to mean literal see. It can be perceive, understand. Then they will understand that the Son of Man has come to the Father. He's now seated at the, seated at the right hand because the temple is a heap of bricks. Let me just turn something in, in, in Matthew 26, just to show you that I'm not trying to make this up, guys, okay? Matthew 26. This is Jesus speaking to the high priest. Matthew 26. Um, let's pick it up in verse 63. Jesus is remaining silent under this cross-examination. And uh, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is Jesus' reply. Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. Then he goes on to say this. But I say to all of you. So here he is in the courtroom before his crucifixion. This mock trial is going on. He says to all of those in the courtroom, including the high priest, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. If his coming is to earth, then I can say to you that Jesus proclaimed that the high priest will be around at his second coming. But Jesus did not say that. That's where those that want a futuristic impression of the great tribulation and this is all to do with the future, this is where they come unstuck. They have no idea what to do with this verse. How is it that Jesus could say to the high priest and all those assembled, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven? Because it's nothing to do with the second coming. It's to do with perceiving that he's now gone into the glory to be with the Father, and he's come to the Father with the blood that he shed as a 
saving not only of earth but of heaven and cleansing the heavens from sin as well as the earth from sin and he comes to the ancient of days and he gets given the kingdom so everything here in verse 30 including they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory it's all to do with jesus's ascension and acceptance into heaven Okay, verse 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Well, just simply to say here, the word angel, angelos in Greek, can refer to spirit beings, angels, but it can also refer to human beings. John's disciples who were sent to Jesus are called angelos. They, say, they ask him, are you the Christ or should we accept, expect another? He sent his angelos. But they weren't spirit beings, they were human beings. Just because it's angels doesn't mean to say that we must immediately assume it's a spirit being. It could be a human being on a messenger. And so, when you see it that way, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And again, this loud trumpet call doesn't have to be physical. It can be prophetic and metaphorical. Remember in Revelation, he hears a loud trumpet call. And he turns around and the loud trumpet call is actually Jesus' voice. Don't you think Matthew 28, 18 is a loud trumpet call? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. They heard his loud trumpet call. And in that generation, the whole world heard the gospel. Again, I, I just got to turn you to Colossians chapter 1 just to confirm this because I want the Bible to interpret the Bible. And I'm not suggesting that there isn't more to be done in our generation of taking the gospel to those that have never known him. But I want to establish without any doubt that the gospel was heard and preached in the whole world back in the first century before the fall of Jerusalem. Colossians 1 verse 6. Ah, pick it up in verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Look at this phrase. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard of it. Down to verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed, past tense, to every creature under heaven under which I, Paul, have become a servant. That's just one scripture of many scriptures I could pull out that in the generation back then, the understanding was the gospel has already gone to the whole world. So, when Jesus says he will send his angels, his messengers, his sent ones, with a loud trumpet call, with a prophetic declaration, they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. That already took place during the first century. Okay, I'm going to draw to an end. I'm about to land, okay? Verse 36, after all this specific detail up until verse 36, Jesus says, but about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. And here's a switch from Jesus describing the first part of the question of when shall these things be, that not one stone is left upon another, he switches to the second part, of the second question, which is about when is the time of his coming, his parousia, his second coming. That generation 
saw the fulfillment of all the signs that referred to his coming in destruction of Jerusalem. But about his second coming, his parousia, Jesus is incredibly vague and gives no signs whatsoever. If Jesus doesn't give any signs of his second coming, then I'm suggesting to you there are no signs of his second coming. And any talk about the signs of the times is a load of nonsense. I say that respectfully. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but it's not biblical. In fact, he makes this statement, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the parousia, the second coming of the Son of Man. What happened in the days of Noah? Everybody is marrying and giving in marriage. That sounds like normal life to me. That's exactly how it was. There was no anticipation that there was to be a deluge that would wipe out the world. There was no sign. The only sign was Noah, the preacher of righteousness. They didn't receive him. But there are no physical signs. In fact, Jesus says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't leave a calling card around 8 p.m. to say, you're about to be burgled tonight. Because a thief comes unexpectedly and without any warning, and you don't know that he's coming. In the same way, the second coming of Jesus is not going to be preceded by any signs at all. Check it out. There are no signs. Because there are no signs, what is important is that we be faithful doing what he's called us to do. That's why then, and we haven't got time to look at this, there are three parables. Each one of which is talking about the master gives a commission and goes away. There is a long delay. And when he comes back, will he find people doing what he's given them to do because there's a reward for the righteous and there's judgment for the unrighteous. So he puts a servant in charge of the household and if that servant doesn't fulfill his task but beats up on the other servants, when Jesus returns without warning, he will hold that servant to account. But he's asking him to be faithful. Gives 10 people 10 lots of money. How do you use your money? How do you use what you've got? The owner comes without warning. I, have you been faithful? Ten virgins. Five have oil. Five don't have oil because they've been irresponsible with what they've been given. The issue is this. There's a commission. There's a delay. But there's a requirement for faithfulness. Instead of looking for signs of the times which don't exist... My encouragement is that we be faithful with what God has given us to do. To get on with the task. Yes, he will return. Yes, he is coming back. But not at a time where there's going to be signs to show it. He's going to come back suddenly at a time we don't expect. And he's expecting us to give an account for what he's given us the grace gifts, the anointings, the commissions and the callings. He wants us to be faithful. So instead of being filled with foreboding, God wants us to be filled with faithful activity that's honoring him. So Father, we ask in Jesus' name 
that any residue of hopelessness, despair, or foreboding about the future may this morning be eradicated in Jesus' name. We say thank you that we don't have to go through the great tribulation. It's already passed. But thank you that in whatever tribulation we do go through, your grace is sufficient for us. And we just say thank you that you are working out your plans through a faithful people who will take a hold of what you've commissioned us to do. And thank you that you have told us that your kingdom will come on earth even as it is in heaven because that's what you've told us to pray. And every prayer that you've asked us to pray, you're going to fulfill. So we say in Jesus' name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ian. Amazing stuff. Can we just show our appreciation, please? If you're, um, if you're challenged by a lot of that stuff, some of you may receive that quite happily. Some of you may be sitting there with your, your brows furrowed, uh, challenging everything that you've been brought up to believe in terms of your Christian life. If that is you, I really, I mean, Sarah did an amazing job of advertising this a few weeks ago, but this really does go into a lot more detail. Um, written by Ian and written by another gentleman called Tony Wastel, two amazing teachers. Um, I recommend, even if it's challenging and you may end up disagreeing with it, that's your prerogative and your choice. Um, or at least get some knowledge and understand where they're coming from and how they get to the resolutions that they've come to. So we've got just a couple of copies left, I think. They're £10 each, so grab one if you can. I'm sure I can get more copies if you want some. Uh, you can contact Ian or we'll, we'll, you can, I think you can even get it on Amazon and on Kindle as well. So I recommend that you do that, particularly if it's challenging to you. Uh, and you want to understand how did Ian and Tony get to some of those things they got to, because it, it explains it really well in a, a not too highbrow a way, and uh, I think for most people will be able to grab it. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes, and when we do, we make sure we say, I'm sorry. We give second chances to anyone. We also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. And we give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we love.